Well, very good morning to you again. Lovely to be with you. Uh, after our sermon this morning, as we customarily do, we'll have time for questions. And so uh, use the SMS number that's in the back of the news sheet to send your questions in, and we'll do our best to uh, try to answer them. We're going to look at both those passages that we read this morning. So, uh, you know, open Matthew now and keep your finger in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Let me tell you about Matthew. Matthew was an accountant. Times had been pretty hard for him since the revolution, and under the new regime, his people were suffering. And let's face it, there wasn't much work for accountants in post-war Israel. He was too proud to beg. He was too weak to labour and he needed money. So reluctantly at first, he took up a government position, collecting taxes. That caused quite a problem for his family and his friends. Matthew was now working for the new regime, for the infidels, their oppressors, the Romans. The taunts and the jeers hurt at first, but at least he had a job. His family was secure Maybe he had a future in the public service. Maybe a promotion would take him away from his own hometown and away from all of the insults. Each day, Matthew would sit down at the town gates and he would collect a toll. All who brought produce into the town to sell at the markets, he would be there with his booth on the way into town, neatly organised table with official documents and he even had a Roman guard just in case of trouble. And of course... He had his locking cash box. All the money was scrupulously counted before being placed in the box. Matthew, he was a good accountant. He was a good tax man until Jesus came along. Matthew 9 verse 9, you can see it there. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. I don't know how much Matthew knew of Jesus before this moment, but my guess is he's probably been familiar with him in some way or other. But either way, Matthew actually records the turning point of his entire life in just one verse of his own gospel. Jesus says, follow me. And like the fisherman before him, Matthew immediately leaves and he follows Jesus. I kind of, I'm imagining there's some you know, neatly stacked coins, half counted, still on the table, ready for anyone to steal. And the ledger wasn't tallied up properly. And, and Matthew left behind the paperwork and perhaps his tax department pension. There's farmers who are in line with scratching their heads, going, where's the guy gone? We, we've got to get in to the market. But Matthew was now a disciple of Jesus. Very soon afterwards, we're told that he held a great feast in his own house uh, with Jesus as the guest of honour, and he invited everybody who would come, uh, all of his mates, perhaps all the guys from work. And while Jesus is still talking and teaching after that meal, one of the synagogue rulers comes rushing in, verse 18, he kneels before Jesus and he says, My daughter has just died, but come, put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and he went with him and so did his disciples. On the way to that person's house, Jesus healed a woman who'd been bleeding for years. When he gets to the house, he gets to the girl's deathbed and he raises the little girl from the dead. Leaving there, 
Two blind men start following Jesus and crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And he heals them and he gives them back their sight. A little later, a man possessed by an evil spirit that was making him unable to speak is healed. It was quite the first few days for Matthew of following Jesus. That all happens in that period described by Matthew 9. One event tumbling upon the other. Jesus is clearly, he's a man with a mission and the kingdom of God is on its way in. Matthew, the tax collector or the former tax collector, he's right in the thick of it. And that is the build-up to these verses that we read in uh, verses 35 through 38. Okay, So a summary statement now describing everything that's been taking place. Jesus went through all of the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Life for Matthew and for every Christian is focused on this harvest, on this mission. There are sheep to be shepherded. There are crops to be harvested. There is a mission to be completed. And just like Matthew the tax collector, Jesus calls us to follow. And we leave behind all that we once were to be his disciples. That's what being a Christian is. The genuine Christian is like an apprentice. Uh, who's working alongside the master on the job. You know, Christians have given up their small ambitions for Jesus' mission as workers sent into the harvest. Disciples have traded their mediocrity for God's purpose in their life. What's the purpose? What's it look like? Well, it looks like Matthew chapter 9. Lives are put back together. Sickness is turned into health. Evil is cast out and overthrown. The lost are shown compassion And the loving rule of God is established in people's lives. Sheep are shepherded and the harvest is gathered into the barn. And so there's the turning point for Matthew and for us. And it hinges on the question, will we work or not in the harvest? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Disciples are actually to pray that God will put resources into action, knowing that next chapter, chapter 10, immediately following this, Jesus says, off you go. He sends out the workers who are his disciples into the harvest Jesus may well answer our prayer by sending us into the harvest. Each of us have a mix of time and talents and treasure which we contribute to the harvesting project. Some have more time, others have more ability, but maybe less time, your time poor because of your stage in life, whatever it be. Um, Each of us have financial resources of varying degrees. And when we pray that God would send out his workers into the harvest, ultimately we are the answer to that prayer. 
along with all of the resources of time and talent and treasure that God puts at our disposal. So, does that mean that we have to leave behind our fishing boats and our tax collecting booths, our families, our houses, our jobs, our security, our base of income, whatever that is, do we have to leave all of that in order to go and make more disciples? Is that what we are supposed to do today? Initially, that is what Jesus' disciples did do. And if you feel like doing that today, we want to train you up and send you on your way. It's a great thing to do. But as we read the book of Acts, as we see Jesus' mission unfold, we see that many believers hear the gospel and stay right where they were. They don't, go, they don't move. They actually stayed right where they were and very effectively spread the gospel among their neighbours, amongst their friends, people with whom they already had a good relationship. So like them, like the people in Acts, we are all missionaries but not all of us have to leave home. And for those of us who've stayed put, we actually have more convenience, more time, more energy, more personal resources available to do with what Jesus would have us do with them. So if, if keeping hold of your job and your family and your house and your stability is, is a choice, then we use all of those things for God's local harvest, right here. This is the mission, actually, that we are primarily responsible for. Of all the possible missions, God has placed you and I in the most advantageous position to harvest Roseville. We're missionaries. We're already here. We're already embedded in place. We know the language. We know the culture. Uh, we, we have relationships already in our community. There are actually no better people, no one is better placed than us to share the gospel with Roseville. And regardless of many, many other mission opportunities that may come before us, surely a significant proportion of our efforts and therefore our resources should be applied right here where we are. You see, just for today, I want to speak about our financial resources being applied here in Roseville, specifically the money that we use at this church to employ staff, the money that we give for that purpose, the money that comes from nowhere else other than from us. Every week we pass around the bag, physically and actually electronically, and we ask people to give for the purpose of the harvest. That's what we're doing. And so there's two questions that arise straight away. First, well, why should I give? And if I should give, well, how much? They're two obvious questions. We want to answer them. The answer to why really informs the answer to how much. So why give? Is the weekly collection that we take, is that like paying for the service? You know, like I liked the band this morning. They were really good. Um, I'm going to give them a lot today. And the sermon was too long and it was really on a touchy subject, not so much this week. Okay, so like, like tipping God for the service. You pay for the service that you come to. Is that what it is? Or is it like a tax? You've got to put in a certain amount of your weekly income 
you know, just to keep the place running. Um, I've heard some people say that you should put in 10% or a tithe, uh, as it was called in the good old days. And so this, the collection each week is like a church tax, right? Um, and if so, are we talking about gross or net income? Or are we talking about the balance sheet, you know, like total assets? Uh, another option, maybe our giving at church is like a charity donation. You know, whatever spare change you've got in your pockets goes into the guy in, in the koala suit, you know, and, and you. Right. Um, good cause, why not? Church. Or finally, is it perhaps a bribe? This is how I get into God's good books. If I give lots of money to church, God will bless me. Instead of pay-per-view, it's pay-per-blessing. Maybe that's how it works. I want to say very clearly that according to the Bible, none of those things are correct. We are not collecting a fee for coming to church. It's not a tax. It's not a donation. And we are not trying to buy God's blessing. Okay, none of those are true, but you would be surprised how many people think it just a little bit that way as they give. Yes, there was a 10% temple tax in the Old Testament. It's called a tithe. We don't see it at all in the New Testament. For New Testament Christians, there is no compulsory 10% tithe that was used to prop up the sacrificial ministry of the temple to buy the sheep and the goats and the doves and so forth and to pay the priests who would sacrifice them in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what the tithe was for. New Testament Christians are not called to pay for that. Um, 10% could be a helpful guide if you're thinking about funding gospel ministry at your local church. It's not a law. There is no compulsion there. Instead, in the New Testament, when it comes to giving... There are two clear principles that drive it in the New Testament that undergird this sending of labourers into the harvest. Those two principles are partnership and generosity. First, partnership. We put money in the offertory each week because we are partners. We share with those who are doing the work. Okay, we can't all do the youth ministry here on Friday night. More than 100 kids some Friday nights are here. And I know that you're all eager to come and be leaders there, but we can't all do it. And there are, in fact, uh, some who have particular talents in that area. We can't do it all ourselves face-to-face, but we can partner with Lauren and Grant Vandermerver and their team as they do an incredible job. Just decide... Do you, do you know that next Saturday night, this is like this isn't part of the sermon. Some would say this is for free. The, you, you know about United next Saturday night? Friday night. Thank you. Next Friday night. So um, a number of Christian youth churches, ministries from all up and down the North Shore coming to the Chatswood Concourse area okay, for an evangelistic meeting. There's going to be jumping castles. There's going to be laser tag. There's going to be bands. And the gospel is going to be preached. Will you please pray for that? Please pray for that. An extraordinary ministry. If you've got time, turn up at 7.30am in the morning down there at Chatswood on the concourse and pray with us. Or if you can't make 7.30 in the morning, that's okay. Come at 5.30 in the afternoon. We're praying twice a day on the site. If you'd like to be part of that, you're very, very welcome. We can't all do it, but we can partner with Grant and Lauren as they do. We can't all go to Roseville Public School with Kath and Mel and the school scripture team. 
but through our financial support, we can share in their work as partners, right? We don't all prepare and preach sermons. We don't all support the grieving. We don't all care for the families who are on the edge, but we employ ministry staff to do that specialised work. We don't all have those gifts and abilities for that kind of harvesting. But through our giving, we actually free up our staff from the burden of working for a living so that they can focus on that ministry. This is all a very, very New Testament kind of arrangement because it's the imperative of the harvest being led well by properly trained and qualified leaders who've been set aside for ministry. That's what, that's what it's about. We, we're all harvesters, right? We all do the work, but some are set aside to lead, to train and equip us well for that role. Your St Andrew's staff are those people. All of your staff have set aside any other kind of work and have willingly devoted themselves to the work of leading and preaching and praying and training and equipping. Why do we pay them to do that? Because from the very beginning, that's what Jesus' followers did. Paul instructs us in this way from 1 Timothy. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Similarly, Paul writes to the Corinthians, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way... The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So because of the harvest imperative, St Andrews has a ministry team that gets paid. How much are they paid? Well, the Sydney Anglican Diocese publishes for all the world to see some guidelines. Here's how much you ought to pay your ministry staff. It's a guide. You can go to their website and you can see it. As a guide, it's recommended that a senior minister is paid roughly 75% of Australian national average weekly earnings. So the average wage across all of Australia, so 75% of that is what a senior minister is paid, which for me last year was about $67,000, plus uh, accommodation and uh, expenses and superannuation, all those sorts of things. Some more fun facts. Okay, here at St Andrews, if you add up all of the staff wages, that's 73% of our budget for this year. Okay, so it's a pretty lean operation when 27% of things go to all of the other stuff. Notice this though, to whom does our budget belong? It belongs to us, doesn't it? It's our budget. It's not the rector's budget. It's not the parish council's budget. Okay, that money that we give tangibly represents our partnership in this Roseville mission. That's the money that allows harvesters to be led and to be trained and to be equipped as best as possible. So that's why partnership is actually the primary reason that we give to our local church. There is a second giving principle, though, that we see in the New Testament, and it is generosity. 
In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes about this example, and we're flipping over to the 2 Corinthians 8 passage that we read. Here is an example of the Macedonian churches, says Paul. I want you to know what their giving is like, so that, that, will, that will encourage you, that will give you something to think about. So first of all, Paul speaks in verses 1 to 4 of their incredible generosity and the fact that they gave freely. So verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God's given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. The Christians in Macedonia had it tough. They were in deep poverty and destitution, it seems. And Paul is saying that in those circumstances, they still wanted to give. And they gave joyfully and they gave generously, despite the circumstances. Verse 3, I testify that they gave as much as they were able. And even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Do you see the idea of partnership there? Because it's partnership, they wanted to be generous. So the the Macedonian giving isn't prompted from the outside. It's not compelled at all. It's not a law and it's not a tax. They want the privilege of sharing in that ministry. Next thing to notice is that they gave themselves first to God. Verse 5. And they didn't do as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us, in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he'd earlier made a beginning, to bring also to a completion this act of grace, the giving, on your part. So the bottom line, in all giving is who's in charge of me? Whose money, whose time, whose talent, whose resources are they really? And if we're a Christian, the answer is that everything that we are, everything that we own, it all belongs to Jesus because we have entirely and utterly given ourselves to him. So putting money to work in ministry is really an extension of just giving yourself to God. The next thing that we observe in Paul's call to the Corinthians is that it is meant to be motivated by love. Verse 7. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. The Corinthians, we know the Corinthians, they wanted to excel in spiritual things, in faith, in in speech, in knowledge, in gifts, all great stuff. But their love is going to be revealed in their generosity. All part of the same thing. And so the same is true for us and for our giving. We we are not motivated by guilt or some feeling of compulsion because I might let the team down. Seriously, if that's your motivation motivation for giving, I would prefer that you didn't give. If you feel compelled or guilted, it's best not to give at all. God's not short of cash and he doesn't need our handouts. 
Instead, he's saying, join in with me. Be my partner. I'm on a mission and I'm gathering in my harvest. Would you like to be part of this? So there is no compulsion at all. Please don't give if you feel guilty about it or you feel compelled to do it. Give because of your love for God, your love for others, and because you want to be part of the harvest. Exactly as Jesus gave himself for us. Look in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is eternal God. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And yet for all of that, he became poor. He laid aside everything he had except his divinity. And in choosing the cross, he became poor. Not just a little bit poor, but the poorest of the poor. Why did he do it? So that we might become rich. So that we would share everything that truly belongs to him. If you've been here for the last four weeks, we've been thinking really about the implications of being made in God's image as that plays out in our care for the environment, in our work. But as we've thought about what it means to be co-heirs with Christ, inheritors of all that God has given him, it's staggering. What an abundant wealth we share in Jesus. He became poor so that we might enjoy that wealth. So this is, this is really the model that informs that question, how much should I give to the mission here in Roseville? There's lots more that we could learn from this wonderful example of the Macedonians and their generosity. Just one more I want to highlight today. Uh, Christian giving is proportional according to all that God blesses us with. So have a look at verse 12. Paul writes, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. God does not expect the pauper to give like a prince. He knows exactly how much we all earn and how much we're worth, and he knows all of the contents of our balance sheet, whatever that be. He knows how much you could give. Jesus is the one who said, to whom much has been given, much will be required. So your giving is to be proportional. Be generous if you can be generous. If you can't, that's okay. You only give according to what God has given you. Now, I know that there are many very, very generous givers in our parish. And there are actually many people who give very generously beyond our parish to other uh, mission uh, ventures as well, and that's fantastic. That's actually the sign of a healthy and mature church. So yay us. What is not healthy is if a small group of people are doing all the heavy lifting. When others who might have similar capacity are not. What's also not healthy if there are members of our church who don't give at all. If you don't think of yourself as a member of our church, welcome, it's lovely to have you here today. So sorry you came on the day when we're talking about the nitty-gritty of church life, but we love having you here. 
this is really for the people here who think of yourself. If, like if you would say, yeah, I'm a member of St Andrews. Well, this is the bit for you. If you are a member of St Andrews, how much are you giving? How much you give is entirely between you and God. It is not my business and please don't tell me I don't want to know. This is just between you and God. He alone is the one to whom we will all give account. So guiding principles, partnership and generosity. The rest is up to us. Let me give you some context. At the moment, we have a problem that is hampering our harvesting. We don't have enough money coming in to meet our 2019 budget. At the end of July, we were $44,000 behind budget. And if that trend were to continue, through to the end of the year, we would be roughly $75,000 behind budget. But we also have... Well, I should tell you too, by the way, expenses for the same period, bang on budget. Okay, So we're not spending more than we anticipated. Expenses right on budget, pretty much on track. But we do have a good problem looming with our expenses for the rest of the year. Um, our nominators have done such a great job finding a new rector and they have been incredibly efficient, so much so that nobody expected a new rector would actually start in 2019. It was anticipated our new rector would start in 2020, but Mal York is actually going to start the very beginning of September, which is good, but it creates a good problem. We have an initial, an additional unbudgeted expense uh, of one-third of an annual full-time rector's salary. So by my calculations, and I'm just an old architect, I'm not an accountant, but pretty roughly speaking, if nothing changes between now and the end of the year... God's mission at St Andrews Roseville will be more than $100,000 behind budget. And I wanted to bring this before us all today as your acting rector. The real guy turns up in three Sundays' time. It would be great to welcome Mal with an improving financial position rather than a concerning hole in the budget. We don't want him to be worrying about the finances when he first gets here. A final comment. Why am I preaching about giving and generosity anyway? Because I think that it is ultimately a spiritual matter. It's actually a matter of our hearts. A matter of our commitment to being the church that provides the best opportunity to hear the gospel, that 150,000 people who are lost, but they live within 10 minutes' drive of our church, the best opportunity that they have. Will you pray with me before we have questions? Our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you are Lord of the harvest and that your plan is to bring so many people to know you and love you. Please, Lord Jesus, send out workers into your harvest. Amen. I promised uh, questions, and uh, Don has kindly got the phone in his hand there. Very good. Thank you very much, um, uh, Stuart. First question is, um, clearly giving money is important, 
Um, but people can also give of their time and talents. And how do we get that balance right? Mm, mm, exactly. Um, yeah, I mentioned at the start that we, um, we all have a, a, a mix of resources, don't we? Some of us have time that we can give, but not so much money or not so much you know, ability. Great, give what, give what you can. That, that's absolutely important. Uh, so make sure you're giving at least something. Uh, but all of us have money. All of us have some time. All of us have some gift, some spiritual gift that God has given us to participate in the work of the harvest. So I would say give all of those. Uh, don't feel as though, well, I'm doing pretty well on the, on the talent. I'm so talented, I won't bother giving any money. You know I'm being facetious there, right? Thanks, Stuart. Um... How much does God want us to give and how much does he want us to have or enjoy ourselves? Can we have any extra things in life when others could benefit from them? Simple jewellery, a third pair of shoes, going to see a movie, dessert. (laughs) I've thought about that actually a lot. Um, I don't think it's my place to tell you how you can make that decision. Um, I feel like I need to make my decision before God. I had dessert last night and it was very good. I have to say I didn't type that question <laughs> in, uh, but could have done. Yeah, uh, so um, that's, a, that's a question that you need to answer before God yourself. I can't tell you how to do that one. Um, I just remind us of those twin principles of partnership and generosity. And I think if I'm a little too generous toward myself, that hinders um, the work of the gospel going forward, I, um, that's going to weigh heavily on me. Um, just, just another thought. If, if you, it, it's helpful if you can, you know, if you think about generosity as a dial, okay, something that influences me in my own giving is um, making sure I'm connected personally with people who are actually at the coal face of ministry. And so, if you know someone who's actually doing the hard yards and you see their life it does impact the way that you will want to give to their work. So I I have a a pastor friend who I support financially and it's really helpful for my generosity to go, yeah, that's right, there's there's my friend who's also in ministry over there and I can support him, but it's going to frame how generous I am towards myself as opposed to generosity to the work. So keeping good context for your giving I think is helpful. Stuart said, don't give if you're doing it under compulsion. How is compulsion different from being obedient? Really good question. I love it. How is compulsion different from being obedient? Well, uh, being obedient is a joy. Being obedient is, is because I love the one to whom I'm, whose, whose wishes I'm following. That's, uh, that kind of obedience is actually not uh, a compulsion because I'm actually choosing to do it. Uh, I delight to obey. Uh, but sometimes, you know, if, if I'm feeling that that is just a, a, a terrible, horrible burden and, and I really, really don't want to do it, then don't. That's compulsion. How seriously should we take the Bible's recommendations that we shouldn't be debtors to anyone? If a person is in debt, for example, a mortgage, would the Bible say that we should deal with our own debt before giving? Hmm. Um, when the Bible talks about not being debtors to anyone, and I think it's from Romans, the context is actually relationship. It's a relational debt 
that is particularly concerned in that particular verse that's being referenced rather than a financial debt. Uh, so make sure that you don't owe forgiveness to anybody um, in your, you know, as you come to worship. So I think that particular verse which is being referred to does not um, primarily refer to financial debt. Um, if you, uh, I mean, many of us, and myself included, are in significant financial debt, paying off loans and banks and so forth. Um, but that debt, I th- for me personally, and in the choices that I'm making, my my home loan doesn't stop me from giving uh, as best as generously as I think I ought to to God's work. And one last one that's come through because we've got the time. Should we only give if it's easy, or sometimes? Even if not compelled, it becomes hard and we have to decide between ourselves and the work of the gospel and God in the world. It's interesting to reflect on that question uh, in the light of 2 Corinthians 8, isn't it? Um, The Macedonians, clearly for them it wasn't easy, but they found a profound joy in giving generously, perhaps above and beyond what was sensible. Um, so um, I just leave, I leave their example to sit alongside that question and for us each to determine what we'll do.